Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. I want to talk Thanks. about earthly riches. Uh, if our giving is an act of worship, which is what we've been talking about, and an act of worship is literally our service to God in reverence and adoration for who he is. Because when I worship, I'm telling God, I reverence who you are. I have a true fear for who you are. And I adore everything the word says about you. Right? And so worship reverences and adores God and giving is a worship. So in my giving, I'm doing the same thing. In my giving... I am saying, I reverence you, and I adore you, recognizing that you have the ability to take care of me. I ended last week with the statement that God can do more with my 90% than I could ever possibly do with my 100%. That's an adoration. That's an expectation. That's a knowing that I serve an all-sufficient God that is capable. Amen? And we serve a God that is capable. Does everybody believe that? then giving should never be a real question or concern for a believer. If you say that you believe God created all things, sent his son Jesus to die for you, was raised again, sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession on your behalf, those are huge statements of faith, much smaller than saying, I'll give him because of these larger declarations a, a portion of my finance, which is why it, they're lesser things. We talked, the last verse I used last week was that our tithe, our giving, is considered or was assumed by Jesus as a lesser thing in regard to righteousness, not a primary thing. And so that's what we discussed. Today, though, like I said, I want to talk to you about earthly riches. And I'm going to do that out of 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, I'm actually going to get started there pretty quick. Uh, in regard to setting it up. I want to set the context for this letter, this particular portion of this letter. In chapter 6, really almost in all of Paul's writings, as you know, there's always a responsibility, a declaration of who God is, and then a responsibility. Right? So this is who I am, this is what I should be because God is this, and because God is this, this is who I should be. We see that hinge throughout all of Paul's writings, whether they're pastoral epistles, whether they're um, letters to the different churches, the prison epistles, it doesn't matter. Everywhere you're going to see a uh, switch between theological, the what I should be doing in regard, or who I am, and then my responsibility to it. Amen. And so the same thing happens here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verses 15 through 16, Paul starts with my responsibility. He's been talking throughout the book of responsibility, but this specifically, he says, listen, as he's finishing this letter, I need you to pay attention. He says, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called 
and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Now he's talking to his son and the Lord and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he said, man, you got some responsibilities. Or in uh, regard to the, what's the name of the show? Responsibilities. Uh, the Rugrats. I got responsibilities. You have some responsibilities. And here's what your responsibilities are. They start with worship. Now I'm going to mess up. I'm going to say responsibilities the rest of the time. They start with worship. Paul says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And all of these things are important. We should do all of these things. We should seek righteousness. We should seek faithfulness. We should seek and seek and seek and do and do and do. But why do we do these things? It's funny that Paul comes out of these commands, these very specific, pointed commands, and says this. In verse 15, he says, which he will bring about in proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone possesses immorality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, that is sovereignty, control, Amen. I want you to weigh in on the significance of this. He says, you're supposed to do this, 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 and this. But let me tell you why. And then he goes into a two-verse doxology statement of faith, a, a, a time of worship. He said, I submit to the responsibilities I have because God is who he is. And so he says, <clears throat> he... He who is the blessed and only sovereign. He has control. Because he has control and he's in control of all things, he has control over you and the ability to take care of you. Because he is the king of king and the Lord of lords, he is the greatest authority that there ever was or that there ever will be. Who alone possesses immorality and, and dwells in the unapproachable light, which means that he's always there, always shining, always where you can find him. Whom no man dwells in, who, whom no man has seen or can see because he's spirit, to him be honor and eternal dominion, control. Amen. That's worship. That is a declaration of reverence and adoration. And he says, so I gave you your responsibilities, but let me tell you why you do that. You do that because God is worthy of that. But in addition to that, there's some other things you should be doing. And then he started talking about giving. In 17, and I'm going to come back to these verses, he said, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Why? 
because he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immorality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man can has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Every time we hear a command, man, we should go back to worshiping God. We do this. We ex God expects this, gives us the responsibility of this because of who he is. Not only does he have the authority to tell us to do those things, but we should desire to do those things. And so our giving is an act of worship. It's a, it's a consequence of our worship. I give because God gives. I give because he is the great authority. I give because I reverence him. I should shake in my shoes to stand opposed to the commandments of God. The problem of the world is today is that we forgot how to shake in our shoes. We think that we can flippantly adhere to or not adhere to the word of God based on what's comfortable and convenient for us. God has never asked anything of you that was convenient if it was easy for you to obtain, if it's easy for you to achieve on your own, you don't need God, and not, God is never going to be satisfied to have you in a position that you can accomplish whatever it is you're doing. He's going to always push you past your limits so he can meet you at that gap space we've talked about. This is what we have to get into our head if we're going to have the right mindset about giving. This is what we've got to get into our head if we've got the right mindset about anything that God calls us to be obedient to. Is everybody all right? Until we learn this, then giving is always an act of legalism. Until we learn that giving is an act of worship, then we're doing it because somebody told us to, because we felt guilty about it, because we're going to be condemned or feel condemned if we don't, because out of tradition we do. And let me tell you, nothing good comes of legalistic self-righteousness. Nothing. Matter of fact, I would say give everything you got from a position of legal self-righteousness and you've given nothing that God desires from you. you know, that don't sound right. It is right. It's the reason why if you have $5 and you give a nickel, have a million dollars, give $100,000. God doesn't care what the amount is. He cares about the condition of your heart in worship. That's why I never tell you, you should give such and such amount of money. I don't know what amount of money you should give. That's between you and the Lord. Your job is to pray. Angela and I have our checks for our, yeah, we're check givers. We're still check writers because we're old. Um, but we have our checks written before we get here because we've already prayed about it. Angela and I know that whenever we attend another church, another function, there is a, a, a minimum amount that we're going to give walking in the door so that we can't be emotionally swayed. We can't be anything other than what we know God told us to do as his expectation of us because God wants us to be dependent on him, not legalistic about our giving. Amen? All right. So, that's why 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is the root of all evil, and so, and, or so, all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. We see Jesus himself 
combining worship and responsibility in the Gospels. Matthew 4.10, and honestly, I've read this a hundred times. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written. This is after, and while he's being tempted by the enemy, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord, which is your act of worship, your God, and serve him only, which is your responsibility. Jesus pulls together worship and responsibility. As both worship and responsibility are so necessarily close, Paul tells Timothy in the beginning of verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world to not be conceited or to fix their hope on uncertainty of riches. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. But I need you to understand rich, riches in the scripture have two different definitions. There's an overabounding riches that we find in the riches of grace, the riches of mercy, the riches of righteousness, all these riches, these things in us because of Jesus in us that overflow out of us. And then there are true riches as in treasure, money, finance. I, I make the delineation between the two because I want you to understand if it's not easily recognizable to you that this text in context is not talking about overflowing abundance and grace or mercy. Although it takes grace and mercy to be able to give, it's talking about finance. And so I want to make sure that we understand we're all in context when we discuss this passage. All right, he's talking about money. People, I love it when people say, well, yeah, but God wasn't really talking about such and such. I'm kidding. I don't, I hate that, especially if they're wrong. Well, I don't hate it if they're not wrong. If, but if they're wrong, if they don't, haven't studied it in context, then they ought to be ashamed of their self. You can't take any, any single verse and stand on it as the truth because every verse is surrounded by other verses that draw context. As a matter of fact, when Jesus is being tempted by the devil, the devil essentially says, kneel down before me and I will give you all that you desire. If I took that out of context, I could use that as saying, if I kneel down before God, he'll give me everything I desire. Except that the word is specifically speaking about if you kneel down before the devil, he'll give you everything you desire. And that's some of our problem now because we've knelt looking for the desires of our heart instead of the desires of God's heart. And that's exactly what we've gotten. But we've got nothing eternal. Ooh, boy, that ain't in my notes, but somebody ought to hold on to that. Amen? So, let's talk about this earthly riches. And I'm going to break it down into three points, each covering a, a verse 17, 18, and 19. In verse 17, we see the danger of earthly riches. And I'll read this to you again. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Paul starts with this statement. He's telling his brother, his son, in the Lord. Timothy was the Ephesian church pastor, and he's telling him, say, listen, man. He said, you got to teach them some stuff about their money. I hear pastors all the time, well, I don't want to talk about money. It makes people mad. Uh, you know what? I don't want to talk to you about your sin because it's going to make you mad. But I'd rather make you mad and send you to hell 
So we're going to talk the whole counsel of the Word of God, whether you like it or not. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Don't be disturbed. Don't, don't sway. Don't waver. Because Timothy at this time was struggling with his faith. He was dealing with a church much like every other pastor, and the people weren't acting right, weren't doing right. And so he was, he's writing him as a letter of encouragement to say, just keep fighting a good fight, bro. It's going to be okay. But you got to teach him about money. And so he says, but first, Paul starts with instruction, do not be conceited. It says, in this present world, not to be conceited. In your money, don't be conceited. What is conceit? Excessive pride in oneself. We hear pride all the time is the, it's the greatest sin. I think, I am convinced that pride is the genesis of every other sin. Whether I rebel against God's commandment, whether I, whatever the issue is, it starts as an issue of pride. I think I know better than God. Or I think I know better than you. Or I think I know better than a group of you. Every sin that I commit, every sin that you commit, started with an idea in your head that you knew better. And even if you do know better, you lowered that knowing better over those around you instead of using it to serve them. That's prideful too. But so he says, listen, it doesn't matter. First, I need to talk to you about this pride. You've got to be a person of humility. They have to be people of humility in their giving. You have to be humble. Now, what does humble mean? All of us hear fancy cliches and stuff along the lines of, to be humble is to think of others more than yourself. That's great, but that's not a Bible verse. What is humble? Let me tell you what humble is according to Philippians 2, 3, and 4. It says this, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. And here's the definition. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. And here's where he nails it on the head in verse 5. Have this attitude in you that is also in Christ Jesus. In regard to your money, in regard to your walk, and in regard to your whatever righteousness you carry that you only carry because God gave you that righteousness and imparted it through Christ Jesus in the first place, you need to walk in humility and you need to have the same humble heart that Jesus had. You need to mirror his humility. People are, what kind of humility is that? Read your Bible, man. You'll find it's very, the humility of Jesus is very easy to see in the Bible. The man didn't sleep. The man barely got a chance to eat. The man was up early praying. The man was given of himself, given of his ministry. He, he gave his own life. True humility looks like sacrifice. True humility looks like it doesn't matter what I have. If I have it and you need it, I will give it to you because, again, I trust God in that gap space. How many of us actually in our giving or any place in our life where we should all be marrying Jesus are sacrificial in what we do? And let me tell you, if you think you're just giving something, but it doesn't hurt you. It's not sacrificial. 
If I, had, if I was a millionaire and gave you a dollar, that's not sacrificial. Matter of fact, if I was a millionaire and you asked for money and I gave you a dollar, you should be insulted. It was so non-sacrificial. But we have to learn to live like Jesus, to be humble like Jesus. So he told him first, he said, listen, before I even start talking about giving, man, I need to talk to you about humility because without humility, you can't worship. And you certainly can't be sacrificial. Amen? Yeah, that's good right there. Our desires, our ambitions, because we are sacrificial, we should be sacrificial. Our preferences are all dangerous things to us. Instead, we should seek Jesus's, God's desires for us, God's ambitions for us, God's preferences for us. What does God want from me? We saw the, the wristband several years ago. What would Jesus do? Man, that is the question that we should filter all other questions through. That's what humility, that's what sacrificial living looks like. Man, that just means I'm going to have to give up some stuff. Yes. You weren't supposed to carry around most of the stuff you've got now. And I mean spiritually and physically. you got to give up some stuff if you're going to be truly humble. This is what it is to love God, to prove your love for God. Amen? Because when I concentrate on my desires, when I concentrate on, on my preferences, it, that pridefulness says I can do this on my own. How many of you guys think you can do this on your own? You can't. It's a good answer. Am I talking plain enough? All right. The dangers of conceit are compounded by wealth. He says, in this present world, don't be conceited or fix your hope on uncertainty of riches. Here's the two dangers compounded by wealth. First, we fix our hope on our earthly riches. People that have money, that's where their hope lies. You know what a problem with that is? That ain't where your hope's supposed to lie. Your hope lies in the fact that Jesus Christ died to give you an eternal salvation. Your hope is that this world is temporary. Your hope is that at some point you will see and be in the presence of the God that we just wrote a minute ago, you can't see, but is light. Your hope is that at some point in your future, you will be in the presence of God surrounding by, surrounded by physical love, a place of no shadow, no tear, no disease. That's our physical hope. That's our hope, amen? Not our money. And if I had to choose between the two, guess what? Take me to heaven right now. I should live my life as though I'm prepared for my hope anyway. The problem with putting... Our hope in our finance is the second thing that riches compound. And that is that it creates that there is an uncertainty of riches. If I put my hope in my finances, what about the uncertainty that exists in riches? 
Anybody ever had a bunch of money and then lost it? Or had more money than you have right now and lost it? Or had more stuff and then lost it? Well, I have. And that is so easy to do. It doesn't even require a lack of wisdom. Like you could be a good steward. You could be a good manager of your finances and they still be stripped from you. The stock market could crash. You know it. It's like 10 bucks for a dozen eggs or something crazy right now. That's not anything your, your lack of wisdom created, but it's eating away at your wealth, isn't it? Government makes decisions you don't have any control over. That eats into your wealth, not just your wealth, but generational wealth. Am I right? And so when I put my hope in the uncertainty of riches, I'm doomed to failure. Instead, I need to put my hope in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus is unwavering. Christ, Christ Jesus is sacrificial. Christ Jesus deserves reverence. Christ Jesus deserves adoration. And in fact, as those two things define, Christ Jesus deserves my worship. Given's all about Jesus. Man, it'd be so much easier, I think, if it was about something else. But it's not. It's about Jesus. Which means that you have to act like Jesus. Oh, man, I don't act like Jesus. Nobody asked you. You called yourself a Christian. You said, I'm going to declare Jesus Christ as Lord. You know what that means? That means you're going to do whatever you're told to do. And in fact, doing what you're told to do proves you belong to him in the first place. And if that's the truth out of John 14, then not doing what he tells you to do proves you don't belong to him. Because for that to exist, then the opposite it must also be true. And I need to move on because I'm going to run out of time here. Number two. The duty of earthly riches. As, as important it is, as it is that we understand where we should put our riches, where we should focus our hope, all of those things. We have a duty to earthly riches. And that is to put our faith in God first. The end of verse, end of verse 17. It says, fix our hope, not on uncertainty of riches, but on God. God deserves to be glorified because according to Hebrews 13, 5, he has never deserted you, nor has he ever forsaken you. To glorify means to give full weight to, to, to give full weight to the God that you serve. How many of you guys give full weight to the God you serve? None of us. Can I tell you none of us? You know why? I could, I could absolutely, bro, you could, be a, you could be a monk or whatever the most righteous person is on earth. I don't know. And, and you're not, you're not doing that. You know how I know? Because God is infinite infinitely perfect and we're finite and so even the even if I gave him the weight that I know he has today there's a weight I don't know he's has I'm hoping he reveals to me tomorrow and a weight that he I hope that he shows me again the next day 
And so I'm in constant pursuit of something I could never attain, which is the infinite beauty and glory of God. The weight, the true full weight of his love, his mercy, everything that he's offered. Imagine such a thing. The full weight of that God who sent his son Jesus to die for us. That should be our purpose. To pursue the glorification of God. And to ensure that we do that same thing for other people. So that other people can give him full glory too. Hmm. Come on. Some of y'all, man, I struggle in my giving. You know why you struggle in your giving? Because you struggle in your worshiping. If you'll focus on your worship, your giving will go, your, your giving problem will disappear. Because you'll realize that which I have in my hand isn't enough to give the God that gave me everything. In verse 18, it says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So he tells them, he says, listen, you could, not, only, not only is there, um, what was the first point? I can't remember what the first point is. Now, not is there a danger of earthly riches, but there's also a duty to earthly riches. Those riches have been given us for the sake of good works. And I'm going to break this down to you simple. Those good works exist so that God might be known. Generosity should be our tagline. It should be on our business card. It, it is one of our core values at Launch Point Church. We have to be a Macedonian church, which we talked about in the first teaching, we have to be a Macedonian-hearted church in regard to giving so that other people might know and so that we can do good works. Do you know why we do good works? So that God can be known. But God commands us to do good works. Let me read some verses to you, and I'm just going to make this as quick as I can. Provide, good works include providing and supporting our own family. 1 Timothy 5.8. Listen to this. It's going to hurt your feelings, some of you maybe, but that's all right. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those in his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you're physically capable of taking care of your family, your responsibility financially is take care of your family. Now, there are people who aren't physically able to take care of their family, and then we are to, as the church, and the people of the church to provide for the needs of those who can't take care of themselves. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I'm going to read Matthew real quick, chapter 25, 34 and 36, talking about people who can't take care of themselves. Then the king will say on to those on his right, as after he separated the sheep and the goats, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. If there's a need, and you see your brother with it, and you walk away from that need, you're a horrible person. Because God tells us that once the sheep 
and the goats are separated, he's going to say, listen, because you took care of the people that couldn't take care of themselves, coming to come to me, your reward is great. Man, that's a big deal. But it's hard because we live in a busy world. Right? Y'all's world is busy as mine. I had one day off this week because I had a medical thing. But every other day I worked this week was at minimum of 13 hours. I live a busy life. And so to, to help somebody in need is a struggle. Which is why when you calendarize, you heard me say this before, put some margin in your calendar. Leave some time in your calendar. Which just as simple as if you have an appointment at 1 o'clock somewhere and it takes you 15 minutes to get there, put 30 minutes travel time to get there. So that if you happen to pass some lady on the side of the road with a flat tire, you have an extra 15 minutes to help her. Because she can't take care of herself. You know, if you don't have time, you won't make time. Make time. But then it says this. It means providing for any believer in need. 1 John three seventeen, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? Our duty, our responsibility is to be generous and ready to share. And the Macedonian church jumped up and down with excitement and joy, begging for the opportunity to give. Imagine such a thing. I'm not saying you got to be writing big checks, man. I'm just saying you have to write in proportion to what God, or write a check proportional to whatever it is God's telling you to do. Trust me. God put this house together because he knew some people could afford to pay a nickel and some could afford to pay more. And he put this house together like a puzzle so that together all of it will meet the needs of those in need. Good preacher right there. Finally, number three, the blessings of earthly riches we see in verse 19. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. He said, listen, if given is an act of worship, and contextually it is, And when we give, there's a blessing in our giving. The, the word here says specifically, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. He said, when you give, do not expect any return on investment in this world. That's tough. Because we've been taught our whole life to expect a return on investment. Sometimes we give because it's just what we're supposed to do. It's what we're called to do. It's who we're called to be. I don't even loan money. No, that's not true. I'll loan money with the expectation I'm never going to get it back with a heart of giving. That way I don't get bitter. <laughs> but by, right, that's a lesson we learned, ain't it, baby? But it's because I know that what we give has nothing to do with right now, ultimately in my life. 
it, it's a fact that the treasure being stored in eternity is for the future. Hebrew, or correction, Matthew 6, 19 through 20 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where three thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven which happens when we give, give of ourself, give of our finances, give of our talents, give of our time, whether neither moth nor rust destroys and whether and where thieves do not break in to steal. We are to store up, hoard, not for the sake of our own pleasure, but for the sake of our eternity. And in that, it says this, so that we may take hold of that which is life indeed. This isn't life indeed. Eternity is life indeed. Not this. I, I struggle sometimes in this area. Haven't talked three weeks about giving. I'll tell you, I struggle sometimes to be obedient. I think we all do, if we're quite honest. There's something you want, you know. For me, it's usually a, a gun or something. <laughs> but... I'm trying to live for the next life, not this one. And I hope and pray that you do too. But in your giving, and I'll end on this, recognize that it's all about worship. It's all about reverence, the fear of the Lord, and adoration for who He is. And He truly is worthy. Amen.